You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics. I'm your host, Dimitri Vitsa. I'm the CEO and founder of Rock, Paper, Scissors. We are a music technology PR firm. And here at Music Tectonics, we go beneath the surface, looking at what's happening in society and innovation and technology to change everything in the music industry. And we've identified several seismic shifts that we feel like are coming out of nowhere and changing everything about the music business. On this podcast, we've already talked about music is more global than ever, which is how digital removes barriers that existed in physical formats by crossing territories in new ways. We covered music is like fire, which is how music is spreading like wildfire into new fields and spaces from healthcare and exercise to food and workplaces. And uh, we had a great conversation with Vicki Nauman on Humpty Dumpty Together Again, which <laughs> is kind of a goofy way of saying how the industry is being repaired and recombined with uh, new ways that music's being used and enjoyed and so forth. And today we're going to tackle another seismic shift that I've titled uses will remain faster than systems. I mean, different music uses, ways in which music's being used. And I have with me Seth Schachner from Strat Americas to help me pick this apart and maybe promote it or maybe argue about it. I don't know. Seth, how are you doing? Good. Good to be with you, Dimitri. (laughs) Great to have you. You know, before we jump in, I want to talk a little bit about kind of the history of the ways in which music has been delivered or used. But uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do at Strat Americas? Sure. I'm a digital business development executive. I'm a consultant and I run a consultancy that does a little bit of strategic work and does a lot of partnership work. So I help put together digital partnerships um, in the digital entertainment landscape. A lot of it's digital music, but I do work in AI and VR and uh, social networking as well. And I work on a retained basis with different clients. I worked for Sony Music for many years, 11 years at Jive Records before uh, before the good days of iTunes and a lot of the, the digital music business actually started trying to help start the business up and later shifted into a, an international role for the company overseeing their Latin American digital business in Miami, where I spent uh, the bulk of the last 13 years. I'm in LA now. And I mostly focus on partnership activity. I work for uh, clients like Smule and Microsoft and tend to do a lot of work in Latin America, but also the U.S. as well. So in a nutshell, that's who I am. Cool. It's great to have you, Seth. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So um, we're going to dig into this concept. And, uh, you know, I feel like the music industry is a bit like a, a moving target. Maybe we're trying to fix the airplane as it's still flying or change it into a new uh, <laughs> new vehicle altogether. And I think the pace at which new forms of music um formats for music is emerging, uh, is more rapid than ever. And I, before our conversation, Seth, I was just kind of like digging through thinking about this to make sure I wasn't crazy. Cause it seems like every day we hear about a new app, a new platform that changes a little bit about how we think about how people listen to music and engage with music. And I looked at like piano roll starting in the 1880s and going through to wax cylinders, 1890s, 78 RPM records, 1901, radio coming in 1920s, 1930, the first RCA Victor LP vinyl getting sold, a similar time when reel-to-reel tapes were coming in. And then it was another 30 years before the compact cassette came on the scene and another eight years for eight-track tapes. And we had MTV and compact disc in the 80s. And then 1999, Prince named it, but Napster kind of changed everything. Mm -hmm. And if you look at from 1999 to the next nine, 10 years, 
there's as many format shifts or introductions in music than there were in the previous hundred years. So you've got Napster, Ringtones, Last.fm, iTunes, Pandora, and YouTube. I know some of these are kind of overlapping in a way. Um, SoundCloud, Bandcamp, Spotify, you get into the kind of streaming. So you go from like a physical product to a pirated digital download, this little side story of ringtones, and then uh, legit downloads and then switching into streaming, both audio and video with audio. Um, lots of stuff. Uh, lots of stuff happened. Where, where did you enter in the music industry? Were you, you were kind of in the ringtone era, weren't you? Uh, I think so. You, you know, you left like the uh, the Boston Red Sox World Series out of that time later, whatever it might be. I don't know. Um, there's a lot there. Yeah, but I was just thinking in terms of those formats and those shifts. And uh, when I say uses of music, that's sort of what I mean is like, how is music being applied to some? It could be a physical format. It could be a digital format. Or an, nowadays, it's like an experience. Yeah, and um, and that changes the relationship between the music listener and both the composer, the performer, yeah. the publisher, rights holders, and the labels as well. So, um, and now we're seeing, so now we're seeing all these new formats. So video games are a big one we've talked about on the show before. Right. You've got social music. You mentioned Smule, which you've done some uh -huh. work with. Uh -huh. um, that's an interesting one. And then slightly different, I think, uh, definitely different is kind of, I almost think of these like homemade music videos, TikTok, right. um, whole new use. And then you've got, you can go even further into like the VR world with, with companies like Beat Saber, right. which is almost like a, feels like a VR version of Guitar Hero or something, something like that. Sure. Um, so what are you seeing in this trend of more and more ways music's getting used, new ways, and, and where are some cool unexpected uses that you've come across? So. No, sure. It's a great question. I mean, and it's, it's, it's actually really, it's fascinating to hear the timeline, you know, I mean, because um, I think, I think if you look back over time, like when there were these format shifts, you know, uh, I guess there were periodically, you know, big jumps in revenue, right? When people were, you know, replacing their vinyl collection with, with CDs, for example, um, you know, you saw a big jump. And then, you know, in this, in this phase you're talking about with Napster, you know, that kind of kicked off a, an era when there was, you know, almost like a, a halving of the, the size of the recorded music industry, you know, while piracy was out there and there wasn't really like a really great, you know, digital response to it. So, yeah, no, I mean, I think to answer your question is unquestionably loads and loads of consumption and, and music consumption is probably at an all time high you know, whether you're looking at it through this prism of major digital services and different types of platforms or uses or configurations, whatever they might be, um, or just the aggregate volume of music being consumed. I think the adage was it would be like water one day. Um, so if, if that's, that's probably fair to say. I think what's different in the last, you know, um, decade with, with the streaming era is, is that there's been you know, a, a renewed growth in the industry where, where the size of the industry was halved because piracy was eating away at it. You now have, you know, premium subscription services and ad supported services and, and tons of other different types of things from, from radio to platforms like SoundCloud to, to some of these even, you know, newer platforms you're describing, which may not be the biggest revenue sources, but, but are interesting new pieces of the puzzle. And I think that you're starting to see a shift a little bit away from recorded music being the centerpiece of it. So if you look back at, you know, I guess from the 1880s to, uh, you know, 
to something in the early 2000s, you know, recorded music was unquestionably, you know, you know, the key piece upon which the revenue and the business model was based. I think it's fair to look at the future and say, you know, is it going to shift a little bit? Is it going to be more about individual artist economies and access to artists and their audiences? <clears throat> Will there be services that, that result from this that aren't specifically based on recorded music? Or will there be something else? So that's probably the big question that I see. And it makes kind of my gig as a consultant really interesting, actually, because I think um, streaming has, you know, you know, risen. There's a, there's been a rising tide from streaming and it's, it's enabled, I think, more and more innovation in the market um, to your question. Um, who's going to win? Who's going to lose? I, I don't know. I think, I think, I think the game is mostly about premium subscriptions right now because those need to grow and i think as long as that keeps happening you'll you'll keep seeing more and more innovation in the market actually you know i i think i want to challenge you a little bit on this because i think there was a sense we've got the, if you've been in the music industry for a while you see that there's like a sense of this is how you do it in this era and then it switches you know from vinyl to cds to tapes to um back to cds to to downloads to streams and i think it feels like, you know, when you're running a business, you want to figure out, okay, so what's the model for, for making all of this work financially and, and in other ways, using all the resources you have to, to have a benefit, you know, to make a benefit to the business yeah. and the artists and everything. And it feels like right now people have grabbed onto streaming, but I feel like all these other things start to feel like pain points for people who are um, kind of solidifying their place in the streaming economy. But these things like TikTok, um, and e even YouTube to some extent still, or, or Twitch, right. where it, it's not fully defined yet about like, what is the value proposition? What is the fair value of the music use of a seven second video? Or how about something like a Giphy where there's no audio right. at this point, right. but there's some video, there's some visual rep representation of an artist or a band. And so there's no real find the way to say, oh, you're going to use our video visual content without the music to refer to music. What's the value exchange yeah. there? <laughs> and, um, and that's what I, I think that's what, that's what I'm getting at with this, um, uses will remain faster than systems mm. in that the pace at which innovators and creators and whatever you want to call it, those, those entities out there, people and businesses and startups and things that are like, oh, we could do this with music. We could do that with music is becoming more and more quick to change and iterate. And it's very hard to keep a business model around monetization to adapt fast. Enough. Yeah, I think that's very fair. I think it's a great, um, you know, question and point. I think, you know, historically, I mentioned, you know, in some earlier conversations with you, I, I worked at Sony for many years, even in the earlier days of, um, you know, of the mobile landscape when, when, you know, you mentioned ringtones earlier, ringtones were actually in some ways extremely important because, you know, they were these early generation products. They didn't start around master recordings. They started with these things called monophonic and polyphonic tones. Actually, I still remember we didn't, we didn't quite know what to do about it, but it, it, it crossed our landscape too. So it's, it's a fair point. We, I had folks in, I still remember my offices at BMG from, from Brazil, from Mexico, literally coming in asking, you know, our carriers, Claro or America Mobile, tell us that we're bringing these ringtones into the market. What, what do we do? How it's supposed to be priced? What's, what's the fair value? We didn't really always have a good answer for it. Um, 
but we at least try to in some way partner with it. So I, I think that's kind of a normal function of the market, there being some friction that's there. I mean, the thing that I think is different now, and it's part a function of um, app stores and devices and social networks like an Instagram where, you know, a big artist can go out and just generate enormous audience for him or herself. And, you know, that's, that's an economy in and of itself. You know, whether you're an influencer, you've got a multi-channel network deal, whatever it might be, an, an ad revenue business on your own. And so the recorded music is in a little bit different of a context in that, in that area. So I, I, I do work with one of these social, uh, social music apps, Spool. I do their Latin artist partnerships for them. And, um, you know, I help bring in artists for them, big ones, uh, a lot of ones from Latin America. We've seen, I recorded an artist recently from Brazil, Anita, who a lot of Americans wouldn't necessarily know. She's got 40 million fans on Instagram. Um, you know, her own jet, her own fast food place, a line of perfume, you know, just you know, an economy like you wouldn't believe for an artist. And, um, you know, I'm hesitant to say this, but I'll say it diplomatically. The music is, the recorded music is one part of the mix of her economy. It's an awesome thing to see from a business perspective and a social perspective. And so, um, you know, without going into detail, the music licensing is not necessarily the most important piece of, of how something like that happens. I think the audience that gets aggregated is, is a lot more important. Labels may not like to hear that, um, and that may inform what they're doing with the TikTok, but um, I think it's a different landscape now. So, But at the same time, I don't see people saying, let's not license the TikTok or block them. I think it's a reality, and, and, and you know, a lot of parties need to deal with it. You know, um, I think even your ringtone example and, and as well as Smool, um, brings up this idea that there's unexpected uses that emerge. And, um, I'm curious if you have a sense of what the industry needs to do to adapt labels, publishers, even artists and managers, what do they need to adapt to, to handle these future unexpected uses? Is it just each time? I mean, I'm curious when you brought up the ringtone thing and you said, yeah, we didn't exactly know how the pricing should work. I'm curious, like, how did it work? Like <laughs> when nobody knew, um, what was the biggest factor that ultimately led to the price that people ended up? I mean, I remember ringtones at 99 cents up yeah. to like a buck 99, 299 for some premium ringtones. Well, look, I mean, these are asking, these are great questions and there isn't one, I can't give you a formulaic answer to this, but you have to kind of ride, go with the flow. I mean, in, in, in the mobile case, so, I mean, and I'll speak from the record label perspective and I don't know how dated the, the statement is, but you know, your record labels traditionally are wholesalers, you know, they're not retailers. They do have D to C initiatives in some cases, but they're direct to consumer, but typically someone else will be setting the price. So you're not out in front of a party going, here's what the end user price should be. You're trying to understand what they're selling it for. In, the, in that case, the carriers were determining that. And sometimes that's a function of, you know, everything from the country they're in. And in my case, I'm talking to you about Mexico or Brazil. And some of those have very different purchasing, you know, considerations in terms of people's purchasing power and what prices should be. Um, in other cases, it may be someone's on a data plan and it, it's, you know, the price may not even be felt by the consumer for music or for, for whatever they're buying. But I think the real thing is back to your point, you're trying to understand, well, what's going on here? What's the value? How much should recorded music be of it? Basically, how does that chart against other 
things we've done previously. So, you know, strategically, anyone, you probably wouldn't want to have one, you know, pricing strategy, wholesale pricing for a use that is identical in different territories. You, you want to have something that's kind of roughly strategically similar, basically. So that's, that's kind of what you're trying to do in that case. And, and, and you don't want to miss out on something either, right? So I've, I've seen cases, I'm not going to name names, but where, where we thought the pricing or the revenue splits were so completely out of whack where you don't want to go into it because you're going to set a really bad precedent, basically. So you have to kind of strike a balance on these things. I mean, I think the stuff I've seen throughout my career that's really unexpected, I, I had, a, this is a little bit old example, but, you know, I did these handsets a couple of years back um, in America's territories for big artists. We did one for Shakira. I did one for Ricky Martin that we were shocked how well they did. And they were simple <clears throat> implementations of little tracks and packages we preloaded on phones. And we got the carrier to support it. And we got endorsement deals as part of it. And I think we sold two and a half million of those quickly. And there were things that were not on anyone's radar. Like it certainly wasn't in the artist contract that someone would go do a, you know, an artist branded handset in an international territory and pull in a tour sponsorship, all sorts of other elements of it as well. So um, that would be something that I think is quite unexpected as well. Yeah. You know, I want to ask you, um, cause this kind of gets into this idea of this value gap in music. That's been a, a conversation quite a bit. Um, and I, and I think, um, you know, to me, it raises the question of whether the micro uses of music, these little new <laughs> uses that are unexpected, like they get into YouTube or then they get into TikToks or, um, you know, who knows what's next little mini memes that music's a part of. Do, do those small uses devalue music or do they increase engagement of music? And I'm curious where you stand in that kind of tension. Well, look, it's really hard for me. I need to know what a micro use is and what you're referring to. I mean, I think the thing now, you know, um, I don't want to overweight the importance of streaming, but you know, the, the time we're in now is a, a heck of a lot better than 10 years back or 15 years back. So and I, I see it in so many different ways. I go to a Grammy party and I can't believe how much money is being spent. You know, the the last few ones I was at at Sony were really humble affairs because our, our business model was under attack in so many different ways. I think it's a bit of a more steady, you know, state landscape now where premium subscriptions are growing and there, there's real revenue coming in, which means that, um, you know, I think it's it's maybe a little bit harder for someone to look at a new product, a new configuration, a new use and say, that's cannibalizing something else. You know, we're, we're not going to sell a Spotify subscription because of that artist duet on TikTok or whatever it is. So I think, um, I think from what I've seen out in the landscape as a consultant with, with plenty of different digital music clients is that um, people aren't trying to kill each other anymore. Even the labels are, are trying to invest in new initiatives and strategically spreading their wings around a lot. So I guess it depends on the micro use and, how directly competitive that would be in, um, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the streaming service. I mean, I asked, uh, you know, my teenage son recently, you know, why would you need to do any piracy anymore? Or why would you need to get any music that, you know, is, um, you know, isn't, isn't legally available? And he didn't really have a great answer, but, but I think that, you know, what, what came out was there may be pieces of repertoire or tracks that, aren't available on a Spotify, you know, or, on, you know, you, you might need to pull it from SoundCloud or wherever it might be. And um, 
but I think that's a really small piece of the landscape now. Like I, I see less of a reason for piracy than I did 10 years ago because of how much music's available now. So um, I'm probably a proponent of it, of these micro uses, whatever, whatever they are, whatever you're referring to. <laughs> I, I mean, I can make some up that haven't been invented yet. That's pretty- <laughs> I don't know what a micro use of music is specifically, but tell me it out, whatever. <laughs> I like, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, not to overemphasize TikTok, but it is like blowing up right now and doing extremely well. And I've got a teenager as well. And, um, you know, she has a, a premium Spotify account as well. And, and prior to that was very into uh, consuming music legally on, on YouTube. Um, although she likes the premium experience um, uh, and, and, you know, marks and downloads lots of tracks that she can carry with her everywhere. Um, but she's also engaged on the TikTok side. And, and the truth is she's not looking for music on TikTok. And though she will get some earworms from TikTok um, as a result of memes, um, the, the emotional engagement with that piece of content, which sometimes is just a, you know, a few seconds is not really about the music, but the music is present in it. So in that sense, you know, it's a short, it's very short form. You're talking kind of like a vine, seven seconds could be, could be up to a minute, but it's typically not at all. And the music becomes a signifier that connects the videos together or a signifier of a certain subcultural identity group, although they tend to be pretty, pretty mainstream too. Um, so I don't mean subculture in that sense. I just mean like, sure. this is what these 13 and 16 year olds are listening yeah. to right now or, and what they're doing is some dance move on some steps or some prank on some friends or some dance that somebody created and, and they keep tweaking or whatever yeah. and so forth. And so I guess I think of it as a micro use in the sense that it's not the full song. It's not a sample. It's bigger than a sample. Right. And the emotional connection is not really about the song necessarily, but they need the song. <laughs> right, right. No, I got it. Well, look, I think that um, that connection, I know just from my spiel experience, um, you know, what, what I think is most, um, you know, resonant there, what resonates the most is sort of that, you know, organic looking connection between an artist and, and his or her fans. And, you know, in Smill's case, we're doing it with something that looks like a live sing-along. It's actually not. It's recorded once. And I, I go off and record lots of uh, artists with our team to do that. And you always want to encourage an artist to look like they're singing live that not necessarily are. But um, but when you have that connection, um, it's just, it's really cool. And people love to share it. And I think that's part of what's driving it, that kind of fan artist community connection. Now, um, the other thing I think about these social music platforms, TikTok's Mule, like Star Maker, there's some from China. Um, they can be breaking music platforms as well. I mean, I think this thing that happened with Little Nas X this summer, right? That track's been with Billy Ray Cyrus has been started, I believe, on TikTok, or it, TikTok drove a lot of the growth of it. And I mean, the thing is now been at number one, at least on the U.S. Billboard charts for, I think, longer than anything. Um, and so, I mean, I totally think that it, the kids are looking at some of these platforms and, you know, and memes are coming out of it as well. And they are breaking music platforms. You know, they, they have the potential to do that. And that's that's awesome. I mean, that's that only reinforces how good it is, basically. So. Yeah. And you have you have these other uses that get added to, you know, social platforms. So these these Instagram 
stories with a new music sticker where you can add music to your to your stories and you kind of have to be into using Instagram right. to Instagram to see how to how to use it and how to do it the interface is not obvious to an older generation um but but those also similarly you know it's like this is not a music platform it's a sharing platform and music is getting into it in a similar way that i would say that sync worked or works as well you know it's like let's use music to add a soundtrack to this experience but it's now this user generated experience and I just think we're going to see more and more use of those. And that's not the same to me as, as premium streaming experience. Yes, we are in that moment in this, in the streaming era where that's, what's driving revenue growth, but these, d- this diversity of formats, what I refer to as uses are sometimes micro uses, which I, I don't know. I made yeah, up micro yeah. use. I don't, well, I've heard people use micro sync, oh, cool. so, <laughs> um, you know, but a lot of it's like user generated. It's not like the old model where you put a sync on something and it gets broadcast to a million people and, or 10 million people or whatever. And there's a real budget for it. These are like collecting fractions of pennies along the way. Well, but I think, you know, you're making a really important, but I think that, um, you know, for sure, I mean, the, I think the personalization aspect of some of the streaming services, I mean, I, I think about playlists and, you know, Echo Nest, whatever, whatever it was, Spotify bought. And I think all the others have their own different, whether it's Deezer or Apple as well. And, and um, you know, I think that's personalization to a certain degree. But I think what you're describing is much more of a, you know, at least from the, from, from the services that involve collaboration in some way, it's much more of an actual kind of <clears throat> near live, you know, connection, if you will. I also see, you know, um, just from like following artists that get recommended to me on Instagram or on Facebook, um, you know, it, it cuts through the clutter, at least for me, in a big way. I, I've been listening to, uh, is it Freya Writings from the UK? It was just a, you know, a new artist on, I believe she's on Columbia, and it came purely to me through social media marketing. You know, and as soon as the record was released, I was, you know, all over it, just listening to it from day one on Spotify. I don't know how, how whoever, whatever bot targeted me for it, but I know that in my case it worked. So it was pretty highly effective digital marketing um, that really cut through the clutter for me. Well, I, um, I'm, I'm still in the mode of like thinking about what are these next, <laughs> these next uses going to be and how people are going to react. I mean, I think another one that we haven't talked about yet are the creation and or engagement around stems and, um, users uh-huh. becoming creators in collaboration with the original composer and, and writer and performer. Right. Um, and I feel like that's something that's those, that type of licensing and systems behind that are, is still unfolding right now. For sure. I mean, um, you know, splice is, I think a decent example of that in New York, it bought Indaba, um, is, is all into that kind of collaborative, uh, STEM sharing community with, with producers. Um, you know, unquestionably dubset entities out there that are trying to, who I believe is helping some of the major labels like Sony kind of sort out the licensing landscape in this world. I mean, I see that whole trend is, um, you know, continuing. I mean, I'm just reading this week about the, the Katy Perry Dark Horse case, which is, you know, a little bit mind boggling mm-hmm. to me because I think what you're describing only gets deeper and deeper. I think producers, artists, writers will collaborate whether they're writing to beats or sharing them remotely. And, um, you know, in the Katy Perry case, it feels to me like at least for what I've seen initially that will only kind of rise the tide of more infringement claims happening, which I don't necessarily think you want artists or creators to be thinking about when they're, when they're writing a song, you know? 
Well, I mean, I, I'm actually saying one step further, which is if you've created an app where you can offer a consumer experience, a listening experience that's actually a playing experience where they are now taking stems from known songs, recreating them. It's not just a remix where you're like sort of hacking it together necessarily, but where you've literally got this new opportunity to take these stems, interact with them, create something new. And theoretically, you could then eventually have a distribution model built in so that a fan could push their remix that's based on a tablet. They don't even have to have any like special equipment or anything, create a song and, and, and resell it. And then do they get a, a percentage of sales? The original songwriters and performers and master rights holders get a percentage of sales. Um, all that stuff, you know, right, like right. You have a system in place for that. I assure you it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there's, um, I know a, a startup called record gram out of, out of Miami that I think is, straight in the targets of that out of, out of band lab is doing similar stuff to that as well. But no, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I think that sort of collaborative creation and sharing and then building a business around it is certainly plausible and possible. I mean, I think, um, I, I still think you probably need one probably needs the support of some major entity to market it, to bring it out, you know, in, in a big way to market and get engagement for it. But, I know there's dozens of examples that would counter to me on that and say you're wrong. And you know, here's here's the latest breakout hit from Billie Eilish or whomever it was that was created in the living room that you know didn't need the major label support. Um, so no, I think I think it's it's possible um, more more now than ever. You know, going back to the beginning of this conversation when I was talking about timelines. The uh, the compact cassette came out in 1962 was when that was launched, and the compact disc came out in 1982. That's a 20 year gap between those two formats. Or you could look at the LP from 1930 to uh, the cassette to 1962. That's a 32 year gap. And now what we're talking about is <laughs> every couple of months there's some new use, some new way in which people are engaging with music which may or may not have a precedent for how it's being used exactly. And yeah. that's, that's why we're talking about this uh, music uses will remain faster than systems, but you sound very optimistic, very hopeful that labels and publishers and the systems of the music industry are starting to respond much more quickly. So you don't, it doesn't sound like you're concerned as much um, that, that they're not going to adapt, adopt and monetize <laughs> quick enough. Well, I think it's, I, I know that they're responding more constructively, you know, now than they were 10 years ago. I don't know, you know, if you're still trying to get a contract, I see, I help lots of apps that, you know, it, it takes forever still to get certain things in place. But, but um, I don't see some large scale destruction of the overall recorded music business structure and even the traditional roles going forward. I mean, I, I know that there will be loads more artist economies that are independent that, you know, are created around kind of the platforms that are out there. But I still think there'll be a role for all these things. And I still think that, you know, all of these, whether they're the majors or the publishers, are still kind of configured to look at these new platforms, whether it's, you know, VR, you mentioned gaming, platforms like Twitch, um, you know, to, to look at them constructively and try and figure out where the value is, basically, and not try and block or kill them, basically, you know, so... Yeah. Cool. So, um, this has been tons of fun. Is there anything else you want to throw into the mix before we start to wrap up this theme of well, uses will remain faster than systems? Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess, I mean, um, as a biz dev person, I'm still out in the market looking at a lot of these new platforms 
and we touched on a bunch of them. You know, I think um, I think there's tons of interesting stuff that's still out there. You know, what's mostly on my mind these days is AI and artificial intelligence. I just uh, have been working with with Microsoft actually the last couple of months, looking at some entities in the market and, and still see tons of interesting music opportunities around AI. And I think if you can start to think about like a service economy where almost in the way a programmer, a radio programmer or a playlist programmer approaches AI and making user experiences better. Um, I think that there's going to be a lot of interesting players in the market um, in that platform going forward. And I have my eye on that more than I do say the blockchain or the crypto stuff, which I think has been a little bit, a little bit overblown. And I'm still a proponent of VR and, and spatial audio as well, which kind of rides along as part of it through sort of the 3D landscape of seeing some very interesting entities in the market that are trying to be the programmers of tomorrow, whether it's for live events or other forms of community connection. So, um, you know, someone brought up wearables as well and uh, some of the AI and music consumption around that. So, you know, I, I think it keeps evolving, whether you want to call these micro uses or new platforms. Um, but I am still totally optimistic about it. I think it's a, it's a new era and I'm, I'm looking forward to keeping working in this area. I actually agree with you about AI. And um, until a recent conversation with uh, Warner's chief innovation officer, Scott Cohen, I was pretty um, pretty um, tepid on blockchain stuff, but um, he made a pretty compelling case. And we're, we're working on publishing a piece from him about that, that we'll see if, I'll, I'll be curious Seth, to get your feedback once you see that piece. But I am also feeling like uh, artificial intelligence music that's created uh, with collaboratively with artificial intelligence um, is, uh, is a very important emerging thing to keep an eye on. Um, and it does have some interesting licensing and monetization issues, including, sure. you know, if you're a fan that's using an app and all of a sudden you're able to create this music, who owns the music? Is it you or the software programmer right. um, or, or some com combination? There was a great um, recent episode of the Music and Water podcast that Sherry Who does with uh, Alex Mitchell from Boomi, which is a new AI app that's just come out of um, beta where you can really within five minutes, you can create songs. And as he was talking to Sherry, I sort of started to see that this could look almost like music as emoji. It's uh -huh. so quick to create it and you can apply it to a social platform where you're just using that AI created music as a, a, a form of expression without having to worry about the whole licensing side of it, um, which, you know, can threaten um, real human <laughs> creators yeah. that aren't using it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think it's a little, I mean, I agree with that. I think the other stuff with AI, you know, that I've seen recently, cause there, there's different, you know, AI is a big thing that bleeds out to lots of every, you know, if you're really looking just at AI, like on the macro level, um, putting aside music or even other forms of content, AI can be, you know, something that helps manufacturing processes, something you could be in the legal department and have an AI, you know, AI, you know, handling lots of basic legal, you know, elements as well. I think one of the things that I've just seen in trying to kind of understand AI from the music perspective beyond like songwriting, where, you know, you have songs that tracks that are artificially created is just kind of imagine if there's AI technologies or people as a service that are helping frame the music experience in, in a better way. And I'm not just talking about like playlists, like an echo desk with the way you do in terms of personalizing songs, but maybe it has effects on audio fidelity. It has effects on your listening experience. So I think there's there's a lot of stuff out there. There's there's even basic stuff that 
AI purists will, will, you know, will, will sniff at that is, you know, chatbots that, you know, that automate some of the dialogue when you're, when you're on the Ringo Starr bot or whatever it might be. There's tons of uses of it. And um, I think that's, you know, that's sort of what is foremost on my mind, kind of looking forward right now in terms of the music business and, and the digital side of it. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Seth, this has been tons of fun. I appreciate you bringing up the AI side. We've got the AI's Got Talent session that we're doing at yeah. the Music Tectonic Conference um, featuring Boomi, who I just mentioned, um, Amadeus Code, and Song.ai, which is one of these tablet-based STEM remix experiences as well. And we're still looking to lock in a, a one or two more AI companies to kind of be okay. part of that talent show. Seth, you're going to be at the Music Tectonics Conference as well. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to be moderating a panel, and um, sounds like I can give you some ideas on the AI front as well. So, oh, awesome. Yeah, good. Um, yeah, it's going to be great. If people want to find you, they can find you at stratamericas.com. Is that the best place? Yeah, that's a great place. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter as well, which is just Seth A. Shackner. And um, yeah, it's been great talking to you. I really enjoyed the conversation, Dimitri. Yeah. Sorry, but I hope the acoustics were okay. Yeah, we're good. dogs weren't barking too loud here. We might edit out the dogs. We'll see. What. <laughs> Well, you never know. Give, give, give Oliver a credit and yes. be all right. <laughs> oh, shoot. Royalties to Oliver. Uh, there you go. Thanks for joining us. Please hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app and check out musictectonics.com where we post additional blog posts about these seismic shifts. And you can sign up for our newsletter at musictectonics.com. If you sign up for the newsletter, you get a $50 discount for the Music Tectonics Conference, which is taking place October 28th and 29th, 2019 in Los Angeles. We have some great announcements coming up soon. So sign up to the newsletter about our opening party at a very special place that Seth helped us find and um, some other great uh, presentations, presenters and topics that'll be emerging soon. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Music Tectonics.